I kind of wanted to get started today with a bit of a cheesy, ironic statement. Okay, so it's a little cheesy, but it's true, and it's a little ironic. It's that doubt is one thing you can always be certain of. Doubt is one thing you can always be certain of. Uh, I think it's something that we all face, and it's something that we all hate. Uh, doubt is annoying no matter what area of life it shows up in. So just think about work. You know, if, if your job is to build a building and you begin to doubt your abilities or the architect behind the plans, that makes your job very uncomfortable, right? Or if you are an accountant even and you begin to doubt the honesty of the figures that are in front of you, how are you supposed to do your job? So doubt works its way in all kinds of ways and causes problems. Think about your family. If you doubt that they're there for you in a moment of need, uh, that can really erode those deep connections and relationships that we all uh, lean into and count on. But I also think there comes a point in our life where as much as we want to say it never happens, it does happen, doubt creeps into our walk with God. And we find ourselves wondering, is he there? Is he, is he who he says he is? Does he mean what he says? Do I have to actually do these things he's called me to and asked me to do? Doubt shows up in all kinds of areas in our life, and no matter where it shows up, it seems to me that it always causes us to hesitate. It causes us to uh, maybe proceed with caution. And in some respects, that's a good thing. I mean, it's starting to get closer and closer to winter. And we have those cold snaps. We're going to be cold for a week to a month. And, you know, you got a pond out there, right? And it's all frozen up. Doubt says, I doubt that ice will hold me, right? It is caution. It makes you hesitate. It makes you slow down measure things. So in some respects, doubt can be good. But if you really need to cross that pond, if you really need to get out there, and, it's, it's, uh, and you know for sure, everything tells you it's been cold for a month, you know it's safe, that doubt may keep you from doing the thing you need to do. Now, I think that doubt does, does another thing. Um, it can be used for an advantage, and you guys ever uh, play strategy games? Just even something simple like, like chess, maybe, or risk. You know who you nerds are out there who like to play risk, right? Like it's fun, uh, these games we play. Um, maybe even something like poker or some kind of video game or something like that where what you want to do is you want to get the person you're playing against to doubt themselves. Because if they doubt themselves, then what do they start doing? They start playing your game Instead of their game, you can get in their head, right? Now I have the advantage because of your doubt. You've lost confidence. You've hesitated. How do you go forward now? Now, when we come to the passage that we read earlier today and we look at the temptation of Jesus Christ, what I want you guys to begin to see is that the devil was trying to play a game here with Jesus where he was trying to get him to doubt. He was trying to get him to hesitate. He was trying to get him to slow down. Now, this is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, where God had just declared him, last week as we read in Luke chapter 3, he'd just come down in the Holy Spirit in the bodily form of a dove, and God spoke from heaven and says, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. 
There should have been a tremendous amount of confidence Then that same spirit, we're told, that, that descended down from heaven led Jesus out into the wilderness for temptation. Okay? There should have been uh, tremendous confidence as Jesus was beginning to begin his ministry. God had just declared him his son. It was going to be a glorious thing. He was going to come out, usher in the kingdom of heaven. But the devil had other plans. I believe he wanted Jesus to begin to doubt. He wanted Jesus to hesitate. And he began sowing these seeds of doubt into Jesus' mind. So today, as we look at the temptation of Jesus, I want you to see that the enemy, Satan himself, wanted Jesus to doubt the truth that the Father had declared over him. Okay, Satan knew if he could get Jesus to doubt the truth, then, then he could lead him into sin. Today, I want you to see how Jesus clung to the truth, in particular, the truth of God's word, and how that helped him resist the doubts that Satan was trying to stir up in him. Let's uh, begin by, by looking at uh, our passage again, starting in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, where we began earlier today. It says this, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. He was hungry. Now, as Jesus' public ministry was beginning, the Holy Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness. Now, it says he didn't eat for 40 days. So what this tells us is this is a period of fasting. And what we should think of is this is a, a period of preparation. Okay, as Jesus was beginning to get uh, beginning to uh, begin his public ministry, uh, the Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness for preparation. So a time of prayer, a time of solitude, a time of reflecting uh, on God and, and connecting to who God is and, and prayer and, and then this, this fasting here to, to make sure he was ready as his ministry began. Now, if you think about it, this is a good reminder to us. Now, we, we've talked about this over and over, over again as we've gone through the book of Luke, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And sometimes when Jesus does something that's awesome or something that's hard, we go, that's the fully God part, right? So it doesn't apply to me because it was really hard. He's fully God, so I don't have to do that. Now, here's, here's what I want to challenge you guys with. I think, I think this period of 40 days in the wilderness was really his fully man part. The fully man needed to prepare for this season of ministry. And so when we think about God might be calling us to obedience, God might be calling us to something hard, he might be stretching us and pushing us out of our comfort zone. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, needed to take time to prepare through prayer and fasting, then who do we think we are? Okay, so what, what we might think is, oh yeah, sure, the Son of God can go to the wilderness and, and fast for 40 days, but what I really want you to think about is the man, Jesus Christ, needed to prepare for what God had called him into in obedience. Now, as he's in this, uh, this season of, of preparation in the wilderness, it says he doesn't eat for 40 days, and Scripture says he's hungry. Like, if ever there's a no-duh in Scripture, like, it's right there, right? Like, I can't go 40 minutes without getting hungry let alone 40 hours or 40 days. This is a lengthy amount of time that Jesus has gone without food. He's been out in the wilderness probably with no shelter. It doesn't say that specifically, but he's out in the wilderness. I think that's what we should be thinking of. Uh, he's spending time in solitude, so he's probably not sleeping very well. I imagine Jesus is 
pretty tired. And he's alone in the wilderness. So despite the fact that he's probably spending time and well, definitely spending time in prayer and fellowshipping with the Father, he probably hasn't had any or very many human connections over the course of this 40 days. Jesus was probably a little bit lonely. Now, uh, there is an acronym out there that is the word HALT. And uh, as I was uh, doing some preparation this week, uh, I came across uh, the American Addiction Center, and they, they, talked, about, they talked about how uh, uh, people who struggle with addiction, they need to halt when they find themselves to, and this, it's an acronym here, hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Because if you uh, have experience with addiction, if you find yourself in any one of these two, uh, any of these four categories, you find yourself vulnerable to relapse. All right, so if you're too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, you're vulnerable to relapse. You're vulnerable to giving in to the flesh, if you will. Now think about Jesus. He would have been hungry probably lonely, and probably tired. Three out of the four, Jesus would have been experiencing while he was in the wilderness. Now, what, what I love about this is that we know from Hebrews 4.15, Hebrews 4.15, a verse that we read last week, that Jesus didn't sin. It says this in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now I want you to think about this for Jesus, with Jesus for a moment. His humanity on display, out in the wilderness, definitely hungry, probably lonely, and probably very tired. And it tells us in Hebrews 4.15 that we have a high priest in Jesus Christ who can sympathize with our weakness. So one of the things that I want you guys to think about as we go through the three temptations that we have recorded for us here in the book of Luke is that, that Jesus came into this on the same level ground that we are. He was uh, in every respect a man, yet, yet he did not sin. He was able to stand against the temptations of the evil one. In his weakness, we're going to see that he prevailed against the enemy. Now, I want you to think about this. If, if we were to look back at the last verse from the passage that we, uh, we read, the last verse, Luke chapter 4, verse 13, the closeout, the closeout of that chapter Says the, or of, that, of this passage says this, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Okay, so at the, end of the, at the end of the passage, it says the enemy left, and he waited for an opportune time. What's that tell us? That the enemy, we know this from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, the enemy is like this. Uh, Peter challenges the church, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, what I want you guys to think about is that Jesus was in a weakened state. He was vulnerable. If at the end it tells us that the enemy waited for an opportune time, then what's that mean? He struck at the beginning at an opportune time. 
First Peter tells us that he's like a lion, looking, prowling, trying to find someone to devour. He's looking for us in our weakness. So what do we do in our weakness? And the answer to that is cling to the truth because the enemy's weapon is a lie. He is a twister of the scriptures and he loves to capitalize on our weakness. So let's go ahead and look at the first temptation of Jesus and see how the enemy begins to sow in these seeds of doubt. It says this, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, the first temptation here is to turn a rock into bread. Now, what do we know about Jesus? If we think through his ministry, what do we know? We know that Jesus was a master over the natural world. We we know the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, and what happens? Jesus takes something, and he turns it into more. So this idea here of Jesus turning a stone into bread is not in and of itself a sin. Now, because how do we know that? Because Jesus turned bread into more bread. He was able to feed uh, lots of people with a little bit. Multiplying food or creating food is not a sin. So what is going on here? What is the temptation? And here's what, here's what I think. I think there's a lot of irony in this uh, particular temptation. So the first temptation is to turn a rock into bread. Now, how does he begin? He says, if, if, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, what do we know? He was hungry. Was that the God side or the man side that was hungry? It's the man side, right? So the human Jesus, the human Jesus was hungry. Did God the Father ever, does he ever get hungry? God the Father never gets hungry. There's nothing he needs. But Jesus in his humanity uh, is, is, is hungry. Now, I, I love this, all right? Do you, do you see how ironic this is, okay? The temptation is, because you're human, prove you're God. Isn't that clever? Because you're human, prove you're God. Do you, I want you to think about how this introduces doubt, perhaps, into Jesus, how the aim, let's say it that way, how the aim of the enemy is to introduce doubt here. Jesus, are you really the Son of God? Does the Son of God get hungry? No, the Son of God would never get hungry. If you're really the Son of God, don't you need to prove it to yourself you can do something about this? I mean, all it would take, all it would take, if you're really the Son of God, is just turn that stone into bread. Just eat that bread, and then you'll know You're the son of God. Now, I love that. Just eat that bread. Just satisfy your humanity, and you'll know you're divine. Now, think about that. Satisfy your humanity, and you'll know you're divine. 
Now, is that a temptation that our world tries to sell us every day? So he says to Jesus, just turn this into bread and it'll all be okay. Now, what does Jesus do? All right, Jesus' response to this, we see that he quotes scripture. We see that Jesus diminishes the importance of food. Jesus says, food doesn't last anyway, so, satisf- uh, so focus on the word of God and be satisfied in it. But within that, all right, when Jesus says man does not live on bread alone, but on the very word of God, Jesus is emphasizing the importance of connecting with God. He's saying, listen, I am out here in the wilderness to focus on God and his word. I'm not out here to satisfy my humanity. I'm out here to focus on God the Father. I need the Father more than I need food. And so when he quotes this passage, man does not live on bread alone, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, this is a warning to the children of Israel to remember who God is, to remember God's covenants, and to obey him. It's a warning to remain his people by walking in obedience. So let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, and let's start in verse 1 here. It says this, The whole commandment that I ordered you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may, have, that you may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land that, your Lord, that the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by the very word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Do you see that? Like this, this passage here, the very setting that Jesus is quoting from, comes from the people of Israel being hungry in the wilderness and crying out to God for bread. And God provides the bread through the manna. And the whole point that he wants them to do as he's leading them through 40 years of wilderness wanderings is to know that they can rely on God, depend on him, for man does not live on bread alone. Now, uh, the passage continues in Deuteronomy 8 to verses 17 through 18. And it continues here saying this, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Now, do you see, again, just uh, the parallels here between this and uh, Satan's temptation? It isn't merely about something to eat. The temptation is for Jesus to say in his own heart, my power and might have given me this bread. Look what I can do. Do you see the other parallels between Jesus and the Israelites? There's 40 years of wandering for the Israelites. Uh, they're in the wilderness versus Jesus being 40 days in the same place. The, the wilderness, both are hungry. Jesus, the Son of God, experienced immense hunger 
Man, I just think about that. He talks about the importance of them being humble. The Son of God is immensely hungry. How humbling is that for Jesus? To be hungry. That's why I think this, this temptation is brilliant. God shouldn't be hungry. And Jesus sitting there saying, I'm hungry. How humbling that would have been for Jesus Christ. But where the Israelites sinned over and over again, Jesus would not. Jesus would not exchange a human desire for walking in humble obedience to the Father. Jesus would not break his connection with God to satisfy his earthly hunger. Satan was absolutely trying to get Jesus to doubt. He was trying to get Jesus to use his power as God as something to be used for his own advantage. And Jesus says, walking in the word of God is more important than any of that. I'm going to deny my fleshly desires and instead focus on what I know my soul needs in the word of God and connecting to the Father. So what's the second tactic that the enemy tries? Let's look at the second temptation of Jesus in chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. It says this, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all authority and and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, I think for us, when we look at this passage, I think we might quickly think, all right, who who does the devil think he is? Who does he think he is that he can give anything to Jesus, the Son of God? How does he think he can give Jesus all these kingdoms? Well, I want to remind you guys of something. Scripture actually says that, in in a sense, this world does belong to the devil, to the enemy. I want to read a few passages for you that just show you he does have authority and power here on the earth. It says this in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Do you see that? Right there in 1 John 5, it says that the power uh, of, of the world lies in the hands of the evil one. Now, in John's gospel, in the middle of a much bigger discussion, which we don't have time to get into today, Jesus makes this statement in the upper room on the night of the Last Supper, the last night that Jesus had with his disciples before he was crucified the next day. It says this in John 14, 30. I no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. How does Jesus describe Satan? As the ruler of this world. Now let's look at one more passage. This is from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What does this tell us? That in a sense, the enemy has authority on earth. So when Jesus confronts Satan... He doesn't quote scripture about how all the kingdoms of the world are his. Because we ultimately know they are. Nothing is outside of God's power. That's why I've been saying, in a sense, they were all his. Because at any moment, this power can be taken away. Okay? But the world belongs 
to the devil, okay? And we know that God will take over and take all power and authority from Satan in the end. But for now, Satan does have a measure of authority here on earth. All right, so what do we see happen? All right, now we have another sneaky tactic of Satan in the second temptation. I think what, Jesus, what Satan's doing here is he's relying on what Jesus already knew. Jesus knew that the kingdom of earth was going to be his. He knew it. And I think what's happening here is that the devil's offering Jesus a shortcut. Now, again, we've got to remember that Jesus is fully man. He's fully God. I'm not denying that, but he's fully man as well. He's fully God, fully man. Now, which of us does not like a shortcut? Okay? Now, if my three brothers, if you had to guess which one is most, most commonly going to take a shortcut, it's this guy. I love a good shortcut, okay? Why, why work harder when you can work smarter, right? So let's see if we can figure this out. Let's find a way to get to the same goal without it being near as hard. If there's an easy way, why do the hard way? Well, I think Jesus is a smart guy, right? He's the son of God. All right? And sometimes shortcuts aren't worth it. They're not worth the cost. They're not really a shortcut at all. You end up paying way too much in the end. But here's what I want you guys to know. All throughout so far, what we've seen in the book of Luke, what we've seen in the book of Luke, is that Jesus knew he was a king. He knew he was a king. Now, if we're going through, if you look at your Bibles, if you've got your Bibles open, we started in chapter 4, right? If you just look in chapter 3, the section right above it, that goes between the baptism of Jesus and the, uh, and the temptation of Jesus, in the book of Luke, we have the genealogy of Jesus. And as the line of Jesus is traced, right in the middle there, whose line does Jesus pass through? Jesus passes through the line of David. Jesus is a descendant of David. Now, also think back to Luke 1 when we were talking about the, the proclamation of Jesus coming. What is it that the angel told Mary about the child that she was going to give birth to? We see this in Luke chapter 1, verse 31 through 33. It says this, And behold... You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the what? The throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus knew he was going to be king. That's the promise. He's a descendant of David. Yet Jesus was a poor peasant. How's he going to be king? Do you see the craftiness of the enemy? Taking a truth and twisting it to his advantage. Was Jesus going to be king? Is Jesus king? Yes. So what's the enemy do? Hey, you know this is going to happen. Let's make it happen now. Why should the Son of Man, why should the Son of God uh, uh, live as a peasant when you know you're going to be king? Man, do you see how the enemy does that? How he twists things. How he takes the truth and begins to make us doubt. And it's in that doubt that we find ourselves weak and tempted. Now, I love... I love what Jesus does here. He doesn't address the kingdom thing, all right? Instead, he goes back to Deuteronomy, and he quotes 
Scripture again. What was the cost for that shortcut? All he'd have to do is worship the devil, and all that could be him, his. As tempting as that might have been, Jesus clung to the truth that I cannot serve anyone but the Father. So he, he, uh, he paraphrases this time from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let's look at verse uh, 13 that Jesus speaks from. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 13 says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall, ser- you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. And what's it say earlier in that chapter, in uh, chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, at the end of the day, Jesus professes two truths that we need to hold on to as followers of Jesus. And that is this, there is one God, there is one God, the Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. There is one God, and He is the only one, this is the second truth, the only one we are to serve and obey. There is one God, and He is the only one we are to serve and obey. No matter what the outcome was, the cost wasn't going to be worth it. Okay? So, yes, maybe, maybe Satan could really present all these kingdoms to Jesus. But what Jesus says is the cost of that is not worth the truth. The truth, I would have to worship you. It's not worth that. I'm going to worship the one true God, the Father. I'm not going to pay this price to get that. As we face temptation, that's what we have to say. Is is this worth the cost? And let me tell you something. The answer is always no. Now what I love here is that the enemy offers the kingdom of the world. So if you think about value, this is a big payoff. So think about this like you know, my, my kids and I have a joke, all right? We talk about Jeff Bezos and how much money he has owning Amazon. And we, we, if you took his net worth and you divided it by an hour, uh, hourly wage, or you took his net worth, divided by an hourly wage in a year, I think we said it's about $6 million an hour that Jeff Bezos makes. And so we have this joke in our house, well, if we made $6 million an hour, could we do whatever, right? If we, if we, well, if we made $6 million an hour, could we do that? Yes, yes, honey, we could. Could we buy that if we made six? Yes. You know, like, okay. So I want you to think about this. Like, Jesus is offered the kingdoms of the world. It's, it's Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and then some combined, right? The kingdoms of the world. If ever there was a payoff, this was it. And he says it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Serve the Lord your God and him only, only. That's, that's so big for us to see, that, that he had everything to gain, but everything to lose. And he said, it's not worth it. All right, let's, uh, let's go ahead and look at the third temptation that Jesus faced. It comes from Luke chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. It says this, And he, Satan, took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem, And set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, 
If you are the Son of God, now we're back to that same doubt, right? If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. All right, now what do we see the enemy doing? Jesus has been saying, it's written. So now Satan says, it's written, right? He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Verse 12, and Jesus said, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So here we see again that the devil coming back with his opening accusation. If you are the son of God. Now Satan is is playing on Jesus' potential human insecurities here again. It's almost like Jesus is saying to Satan, don't don't you want to know for sure you're the son of God? Don't you really want to know? Okay, then go ahead. Prove it to me and prove it to yourself. Prove it to me. Now, where do we live? We live in Missouri, right? Which is the show me state, right? So I don't know where this went because I don't think it exists anymore, but our heritage is that we're a state of skeptics, right? You got to show me, right? You got to prove it to me. So this is Jesus's Missouri moment, right? Where Satan says to him, show me, prove it, prove it to me, Prove it to yourself. And then he appeals to Scripture. All right. We know. What's it say in Psalm 91, 11 and 12, right? What's it say? It says, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. All right. Scripture says it. Jump. Do it. Jump. Right? Do it. And what is Jesus' response? He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I love this here. Satan is is appealing, appealing to Scripture as a temptation for Jesus. What What Satan wants Jesus to do is misapply Scripture to justify sinful actions. What Satan wants Jesus to do is misapply Scripture to justify sinful actions. This is something we face as a temptation all the time. Several weeks ago at the beginning of this Luke study, I talked about the, uh, the call to be joyful people, the call to be happy people, that God wants Christians to be happy. And so what I did is I talked about that, is I talked about the joy of our salvation and the importance of rooting our salvation, not an external, uh, the, the joy of our the importance of rooting our joy in something internal in our salvation in Jesus Christ, not in external things. Okay, so we can't put our joy in external things. So if our joy is in salvation, then he really is calling us to be happy people. Okay, now what can we do with that spiritual truth? We can twist it all kinds of ways. Well, God wants me to be happy so I can take a job that I know is going to hurt my family. All right, God, God calls me, he wants me to be happy, so he wants me to spend this money on myself instead of being generous like I know he's asking me to be. And we can begin then to twist that scripture, that concept, that biblical principle into something terrible, something self-serving, something that leads us to sin. And so here's what the enemy does. He confronts Jesus with the reality of Psalm 91 and what that, that God isn't going to let anything happen that isn't outside of his, that's outside of his will, right? So he, he presents him with this, and then what does Jesus say? He, he says, all right, yeah, 
But Scripture also says you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He quotes again from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16 says this, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he commanded you. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. Now, Massa, what is this? This is a place where the Israelites complained against Moses and, and put God to the test. It comes from Exodus chapter 17. The people were thirsty. They'd just been led out of Egypt. They were thirsty and desperate for water, and they complained, and they said they were going to die, and they should just go home. All right? Now, God had just led them out of Egypt. They'd just seen the ten plagues. They had just gone through the parting of the Red Sea. They should have been very dependent on God and trusting in Him because He provided for them in so many ways, and yet they put God to the test. They said, provide for me now on my terms. They put Him to the test, and yet... God, in his grace and in his mercy, he brought water from the rock and gave them something to drink. God still cared for them. So when Jesus says to the devil, do not put the Lord God to the test, he is saying to Satan, I can believe the promises of God without demanding a sign. I know God's going to provide for me. He hasn't led me out into the wilderness to forsake me. He's, he's going to take care of me, just like the Israelites. They should have been there in the wilderness knowing that God was going to protect them. He delivered them from the hands of Egypt. He delivered them from the Red Sea. And now here they were, thirsty. They should have known that God was going to provide. Instead, they put him to the test. And Jesus says, I don't need to put God to the test. I trust in his promises. I know he is faithful. He does not bow to my whims. It is my job to faithfully serve him because he will come through. And with this, the devil left. What's it say in verse 13? And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus continually resisted the devil he fought him with the truth again and again, and the devil left. Now, it doesn't say he never came back, okay? But it does say that Jesus would not compromise, and so the devil had to flee. Listen to this from James chapter 4, verse 7. It says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will Flee. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. What do we see Jesus do over and over again? Each time he's quoting the scripture, what's he doing? He is submitting himself to the word of God. He is placing himself under the word of God for protection. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. And what's the promise? He will flee. Now, we already read a portion of this earlier, but 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, says this. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Then what's it say? It says, resist him. Firm in your faith. 
hang on those promises from God, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. You're not alone as you face the enemy. Other believers are as well. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Where does our strength come from? Our strength comes from the Lord. Not from... Jesus was hungry. Would he have been satisfied if he'd have eaten bread? For a moment. But that's not what it talks about here. It says that Christ himself will restore comfort and strengthen and establish us according to God's promises. Listen to what Paul says to encourage the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It says this, No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. <sighs> A little sympathy there, right? All right, look around. We've all been there. But it doesn't stop there. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out, the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Now, what I love about seeing Jesus Christ tempted, seeing this episode, is he shows us that there is a way out. Literally, the kingdoms of the world were offered to him, and he said, no thanks. Literally, literally, he was starved after death, and he had an opportunity for bread, and he said, no thanks. He had an opportunity to prove to himself that he was the Son of God, the thing that God the Father had just declared over him, and he said, I won't do it. I won't put God to the test. He is our example of how there is a way out of temptation. Now, when we face it, when it's staring us in the face, looking like a lion about to devour us, listen, man, if I'm staring down with a hungry lion, I've only got two options, right? It, it, he's going to run me down. Okay, that's without question. Okay? All right, I can sit there and just get eaten. I can just say, I'm going to die anyway. I'm going to die anyway. Just get this over with. Right? Or I can resist. I can resist. And here's the deal. How many lions can I kill on my own? I know you guys are thinking, he's going to say a couple at least, right? The answer obviously is none, right? None of us can take on a lion head to head. But who is with us? God, Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah. We have our own lion. And so we can face the temptations of the evil one, not in our own strength. What did it say in 1 Peter? The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We walk into temptation. Well, we don't walk into temptation. When we face temptation, we do it in the power of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we fail, we rest in his grace, knowing that he took our burden our sin, to Calvary. That he died in our place, the death that we deserved. But where in our sin we would remain dead, Christ raised victorious from the grave and offers us eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ. We are dead in our sin. That lion on our own will always defeat us. But we have been raised in Christ, a new creation by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can resist the temptations that the evil one puts before us. And praise God, we serve Jesus Christ, who walked as a man, faced every temptation that we face, yet without sin. So that when it came time for the cross, he walked to the cross as the pure, spotless lamb, the perfect atoning sacrifice for you and for me. So as, as the praise team comes, we're going to uh, prepare our hearts to take communion as we sing this first song. And what I want us to think about is, is Jesus Christ, who walks with us in our temptation, who knows what we're experiencing and what we've been through as we face temptation. And our hope is not in our ability to resist, but in the certainty that Christ did resist. As we come to uh, the, the Lord's Supper, it is an opportunity for us to pause and remember what he did. That his body was broken, that his blood was spilled to cover our sin and our shame, to offer us forgiveness and hope in Jesus Christ that we may have peace with God. So as we sing this first song, here's your instructions. There's stations set in the back of the room. There's two up top and three down low. Just go and get, you're going to get the, the, the wafer, and you're also going to get the, drink, uh, the, the juice, and you're going to come back to your seat. And then after the first song, we're going to offer a, a prayer of blessing, and we're going to take communion together. So as we sing, go and, and get those elements. Adam? Adam?